This morning's Bible reading is the whole of Exodus chapter 1. The Israelites oppressed. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and, if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them, to oppress them with forced labour. And they built Bitham and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Zifra and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Thank you. And now over to Martin. In 1949, uh, Chairman Mao established the People's Republic of China, a communist state where, where everything was going to come under the control and supervision of the state. At the time, uh, all of the, the foreign missionaries working with the churches were kicked out of the country. At the time, it was estimated there were about 800,000 Christians in China. And as those missionaries left, they were aware that the church was undergoing increasing sort of suppression and repression. And they wondered if it was perhaps going to be the end for the church in China. It's one of those instances, isn't it, that happens throughout our world regularly and, and in our personal lives where we wonder... What is God doing? Is God really in control of events? Is, does God care and, and maybe even is he there? This term, uh, we're going to be studying the book of Exodus together. Uh, we're going to look at the first 12 chapters. It's the second book of the Bible. Uh, it's situated in, in Egypt with the pharaohs and the pyramids. Uh, it happens around 1400 
BC and it's the story of how God delivers his people from their slavery in Egypt. Between now and Easter we're going to look at about the first quarter of that book. But it begins in quite dark fashion. It begins with the Pharaoh effectively trying to wipe out the Jewish people. And what's striking, as, as we read, as, as, as Neil and Nikki read the first chapter for us, is that I was struck by verse 17. And that's sort of the basis of what I want to think about as we look at chapter 1 this morning. In verse 17, where we're told about uh, these Hebrew midwives, and it says this, The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. Uh, as, as the camera angle sort of goes from, from wide angle and, and Egypt and, and, and the splendour and the wealth and the power and the pharaoh, it zooms right in on these two midwives and tells us that they feared God. As Tamar helped us to see, uh, the fear of God isn't about cowering in the corner in the face of, of the school bully. It's about the recognition of who God is and the right response to him as a holy God. Uh, a couple of my, um, a couple of pictures are going to come up of um, just a particularly fond memory of our summer holiday this year. One evening uh, we went down to the beach and we, we had a little disposable barbecue and we, we ate hamburgers and we watched the sun set. Two things I love, I, I love the sea and I love fire. I love, I love watching fire. I'm not a pyromaniac. Uh, I think like most people, we, we love sitting around a fire. And I love those things, but I also respect those things. I, I love the sea, but you don't mess about with the sea. I love fire, but you treat it with the proper respect. So that's, what it, that's what it means to fear God, is we love God, but we appropriately fear and respect and, and reverence him. We recognise who he is and we rightly respond to his holiness. And I want to this morning show you four ways that we see that at work in chapter one of Exodus. We see it in the life of the midwives and those four ways in which we too can, can live as those who, who rightly fear God. And the first way is this. The first thing is this. Uh, we see these Hebrew midwives, they, they fear God in the silence. See, what we don't always pick up as we, we open our Bibles and we, we read is that, is that between uh, the end of Genesis and the start of Exodus, in the, the flipping over of just one page, that's 400 years of history. 400 years when, when it seemed like God wasn't doing all that much, apparently. He, he didn't seem to be appearing to people or, or speaking, doing any of the signs and wonders that we're going to see happen in the book of Exodus. It feels like 400 years of silence, and yet the Hebrew midwives still fear God. Why? Why do they do that? Well, it's because I think in these, these early verses we see that actually God had been at work. He had been fulfilling his promises. Uh, in chapter 12 of Exodus, of, of Genesis rather, um, God had promised to Abraham. It appeared to Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Your descendants will become a great nation. I'll bless you and they in turn will bless the whole earth. In chapter 15, a couple of chapters later, uh, God had said to, um, to Abraham, uh, Genesis 15 verse 13, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated 
there. That was a, a prophecy of, of what was to come and is happening in Exodus. In chapter 17 uh, of Genesis, God had said uh, to them, I will make you into a great nation. I'll make you very fruitful. And in Genesis uh, 46, uh, God has said to Jacob, uh, I'm the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will make you into a great nation there. And so in Exodus 1, uh, we read the names of Jacob's sons, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. We read they've all died out. And in verse 7, we're told the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous, the land was filled with them. You see, what the, the midwives knew and presumably others around them knew was that God was fulfilling his promises. It was just taking time. Uh, one, uh, one person uh, once wrote this. Uh, you see, faith in God includes faith in God's timing. Somebody else said, happy is the person who can wait and pray with patience, knowing that God's time is the best time. So it had taken 400 years, but, but those who, who knew the promises, who knew all that God had said, they could see actually God was fulfilling his promise. It didn't look like much was happening, but they knew God was at work. God was making good on the promises he'd given to his people. Maybe some of you at home have got um, something like this. Occasionally, you, maybe you make bread or, or you make kind of a pizza dough. We like to do this in our house. And, uh, and you put all the ingredients in uh, and we put some yeast in, but then you have to wait. And, and if you watch it, it doesn't seem to do anything at all. And you have to wait ages and ages. And when you're hungry, it feels like an eternity as you wait for the dough to rise and you can use it. Sometimes we have to wait for all of God's promises to kind of come to fruition. Sometimes it feels like silence. You may feel a bit like, why, why hasn't God taken my illness away? Why has God allowed COVID to keep going? Why has God taken away my business or my job? Why has God taken away my family or my spouse? Why hasn't God given me a spouse? See, well, sometimes we don't always get answers to those. Sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes it takes 400 years for answers to some of those things to begin to be seen. Fear God in the silence, trusting his promises. Here's the second thing. Uh, fear God in the darkness. Uh, the story takes a dark turn pretty quickly, doesn't it? This is, this is page one of the book. Uh, there's not much kind of character development or, or setting the scene. Uh, verse eight, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. Pharaoh decides uh, in his wisdom, or perhaps with the wisdom of his advisors, that the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, are becoming too numerous and they now pose something of a threat. And so they decide the only way to handle that is with violence. There have been dictators down through history, hasn't there? Almost, almost every century of human history you can find somebody. In the last century, uh, perhaps the dictator that, that killed more than any other was Joseph Stalin. Uh, reckoned to be responsible for maybe as many as 20 million deaths 
One instance of that was something called the Great Purge, uh, when he got rid of, uh, well, basically most of the people around him, but also certain ethnic groups who he felt threatened by. One of those was the Polish people, uh, the, the Poles who had uh, settled in the Soviet Union and made it their home. Uh, he decided that they need to be purged. He, he killed something like 100,000 men executed uh, for nothing other than, than their race, their ethnicity. Uh, their wives were sent to forced labour camps where many of them died too. Their children were sent to orphanages. All of their property was taken away from them. Uh, I want you to see that, that Pharaoh is like that. So almost forget the kind of the, the, the little picture storybook picture of Pharaoh with, with all the fancy clothes and the beautiful pyramids and the chariots and the piles of money. He's a dictator. He's a terrible tyrant. He's a, he's a Stalin-esque type of figure who wants to destroy an entire nation. Uh, and the forced labour's bad enough, isn't it? Uh, the first stage is they, they put these slave masters over them, they humiliate them, they oppress them. Uh, but that doesn't work. Uh, in fact, the more they do that, the more fruitful the people become. And so he escalates it. And he asks these Hebrew midwives... Don't exactly how it might have worked, but to, to make sure that the baby boys, as many as possible, didn't survive the birthing process. I guess back then, many more would have died in childbirth. It's hard to know exactly what they were being asked to do, but it seems that, that the Pharaoh had said to them, this terrifyingly powerful man said, whatever you do, find a way to make sure that as these little baby boys are born into their new families, that as many as possible don't survive very long at all. It's a horrible thing. But the Hebrew midwives, they, they fear God and they will not bow in the face of this incredible, scary, all-powerful, it must have seemed, man. They won't do it. Thankfully for us in the West, we don't face that sort of persecution, but we pray for those that do. Uh, we, we give financially to an organisation called Open Doors. You can find out about their work online. They, they support the persecuted church. They regularly update with news of what's going on around the world in places like North Korea and Afghanistan and Somalia, where Christians are persecuted. They do fear for their life. And we, we support that work and we, we occasionally get updates and pray for it. But equally, we mustn't think that because we don't face uh, quite what they face, that there's, there's nothing that threatens us. There are, there are forces of evil all around us, perhaps not quite as dramatic as Pharaoh here or, or quite as terrifying the same way, but there'll be things that, that threaten you, that, that, that perhaps make you feel like you want to give in to fear of man. Maybe it's just the low level kind of making fun of you at, at school. Uh, maybe it's family who are actually are quite opposed to your faith. It could be a spouse that makes it quite difficult uh, for you. It could be uh, workmates making fun of you, couldn't it? It could be any number of things or situations or scenarios. It could be just inward temptation to, to give in to something. Uh, what, is, what is your pharaoh? It won't be quite as, as kind of terrifying and, 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 and scary and, uh, as what we've got here, but what is your pharaoh? What is that thing which, which would tempt you, which would perhaps make you feel like you want to just give in and just, just keep your head down and, and play down your faith and go along with the crowd. What is that thing that would tempt you? You see, the, the Hebrew midwives, they fear God. 
they fear God and not Pharaoh, and so they do the right thing. Here's the third thing. Uh, fear God in your circumstances. Uh, the thing I love, I, I love some of the little details you get in these, these uh, narratives. Uh, and I love this little detail. Uh, I wonder if you picked it up as it was read. Did you notice that the Hebrew midwives, we are told their names, uh, Shifra and Pua, but we are not told the name of the Pharaoh. Why? Because they didn't know. I, I, it seems unlikely. I suspect they did know. But it's because the narrator almost wants to say, I want to tell you about who's important in this story. And who's the important people in this story? It's the people who fear God. For all of, of Pharaoh's power and his wealth and his status, the narrator never tells us who he is. Some ways he doesn't really matter. People that matter are the people that fear God. These Hebrew midwives. And it's fascinating, isn't it? The, the very start of the story. Who's the, who are the heroes of chapter one? Again, it's not the mighty king. It's not some powerful warrior or, or great speaker or miracle worker. It's two midwives doing their job uh, in the fear of God, who in some ways are the heroes of the tale. I want to recommend a, a resource to you, perhaps for families. Uh, there's this little set of cards you can get from 10ofthose.com uh, called Everyone a Child Should Know. And in there you'll find a, just a whole load of cards which tell little, little, uh, little bits of information about people of faith and some of the things they've done. And uh, one of these people is, uh, is, is this card. Um, that's Rosa, Rosa Parks. Some of you will have learned about Rosa Parks at school. Uh, Rosa Parks was a lady who lived in America in the middle of the last century. And uh, she lived at a time when black people were very cruelly treated, uh, even on things like buses. Uh, the black people had to sit at the back. They couldn't sit at the front with the white people. And Rosa Parks was a lady who was on her way home from work one day as a, as a secretary. And, uh, and, and a white person demanded that she move, that she give up her seat. She said, no, I won't. Uh, her refusal to do as she was told, in some ways it, it kick-started. It was the catalyst to the civil rights movement and all that came from that. What many people don't know about Rosa Parks was that she was a Christian. And in a later interview, uh, she said this. She said about that moment on that bus... She said, I instantly felt God give me the strength to endure whatever would happen next. God's peace flooded my soul and my fear melted away. All people are equal in God's sight. And I was going to live like the free person God had meant me to be. Rosa was a, was a Christian lady and her fear of God said, no, there's something wrong here. And I'm not going to do it. So again, she wasn't a person of, of wealth or status or great power or influence. She was a secretary. And the midwives were midwives who, where they were in their circumstances, determined to do the right thing before God. But did the midwives do the right thing? Did they, did they lie? And was that okay? Uh, when, uh, when Pharaoh asked them why they didn't uh, kill the baby boys, the midwives uh, said, well, the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. Was that true? It's hard to know, isn't it? I mean, they weren't challenged on that statement, 
But equally, that wasn't really the reason they weren't doing what Pharaoh told them. They weren't doing it because they knew it was wrong and they feared God. See, the ninth commandment tells us not to bear false witness against uh, our neighbour. It could be that that's in the context of legal proceedings. We shouldn't uh, do anything that harms others in terms of our use of, of, of truth or lies. But it seems in the Bible there are exceptional circumstances where... Uh, in an emergency situation there's a threat to life and actually not just the permitted thing but the right thing is to not give uh, the full truth to the tyrant who would use it to kill and destroy that's that's not carte blanche for you and me to decide uh, what we're going to be truthful about but it's just to say there are extreme situations where it seems that they did the right thing in fact they're rewarded for it in verse 21 because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. You see, there's no, there's no just people with God. There's no sort of, I'm, I'm just a mum. I, I'm, I'm just a stay-at-home mum. I'm just a, a, a teaching assistant. I'm just a, a delivery driver. I'm just a student. I'm, I'm just a retired person. There's, there's no just people. I'm sure Pharaoh looked at and said, how dare they defy me? They are just midwives. But God said they are not just midwives. They are my midwives. There's no just people with God. So what's your circumstance? How can you fear God where God has put you in your homes, on your streets, in your workplaces, in your families. Maybe it's just the way you conduct yourself and carry yourself, the, the way in which you do your job, the excellence with which you care for somebody else, the compassion with which you care for a neighbour, the little opportunities to, to share your story with somebody, or the opportunities to stand up for something you see is wrong or, or support a cause you're passionate about. What is your circumstance where is the place that God has put you that you can fear God and in do so and actually bear witness to him in that here's the fourth and the final thing uh, fear God in uncertainty the chapter ends on a, a bit of a cliffhanger doesn't it in verse 22 then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every Hebrew girl live. See, the forced labour hasn't worked. The Hebrew midwives won't play along. And so he says to all his people, any of you who discover any Hebrew baby boys, you throw them into the Nile. We see the Hebrew midwives, they can still fear God because although the future is uncertain, they know the faithfulness of God in the past. The chapter begins, doesn't it, uh, with this genealogy. Actually, the chapter begins with a word that isn't translated in, in uh, many English translations. So in my English translation, it says, these are the names. In the Hebrew, it says, and these are the names. See, that little word and is really important because it says, this is continuing what has gone before. God is still working. The genealogy tells us, genealogies are always important. They tell us what God has been doing and is continuing to do. It's a bit like if you've ever been in a maze, isn't it? Uh, there's a picture of a maze here. This is from, from Longley. It's a, a huge maze, easy to get lost in a maze. And you can sometimes get to, to a point in a maze, can't you, where you think, I, I don't know how to get back. 
I don't know where to go forward. I, I'm just faced with options and, and everything feels like a dead end. And in that situation, you either need a map or you need a guide. In some ways, the, the genealogy is sort of it's the narrator's guide to say, look where we've come from. Look how God has been fulfilling the promises and trust that he's going to get us to the destination. The genealogies continue through the Bible and, and perhaps the most famous ones come right at the start of the New Testament where, where Jesus Christ is the, the end of all those genealogies. Jesus Christ comes to that point where all of those promises and purposes of God come to their full fruition in Jesus and he makes more promises still. Sometimes that's our guide in the maze of uncertainty in life, isn't it? We, we perhaps feel like we don't know why we are where we are or, or where we turn next. But we say, look, look at everything God has done. Look how far he has brought us. And we trust that he will get us to destination. See, ultimately, the Hebrew midwives fear God because they know actually they aren't the heroes of the story. God is. And because they know that, that God is infinitely more powerful than even the most powerful man in the world of his day, Pharaoh. They fear God and they do what is right. So Heather Small and M people, wasn't he, told us to search for the hero inside yourself. But if we try and live like that, we will constantly feel anxious and confused and uncertain and inadequate. We need to go to the hero outside of ourselves, the hero above every hero that is God himself, to find the courage necessary to fear God in the silence and in the darkness and in our circumstances and in the uncertainty. In 1976, Deng Xiaoping reopened the doors to China some 27 years after they had been closed by Chairman Mao. As the missionaries went in, they, they didn't know what they'd find, what would be left of those 800,000 Christians. To their surprise, as they went back in, they found that the church had grown underground all that time. And, and in 76, there was something like 10 million Chinese Christians, despite Chairman Mao's best efforts to suppress it. Today, Open Doors estimates that there are nearly 100 million Christians in China. Because no dictator, no superpower can thwart the promises of God. And nothing can stop the advance of the gospel when his people fear him. I want to close with just this quote. It's really a paraphrase of a quote that an English writer, G.K. Chesterton, said uh, some years ago. He said this, uh, you know, we, we fear others and we fear our circumstances and we fear the uncertainties of life so much because we fear God so little. If we could learn more of what it means to, to truly fear God and to, to live out that appropriate recognition and response to him, that appropriate fear of him, we would discover that this fear is the cure for all other fears.